Welcome to First Baptist Belton. By God's grace, we aim to be a gospel-centered people that know Jesus intimately, serve Jesus passionately, and share Jesus globally. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that you enjoy the following message. I want to invite you to open your Bibles. It's going to be hard to find. It's at the very end, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Thank you, Dr. Guest, for being with us and leading us in the days ahead. I appreciate you very much. Sammy, thank you for playing and stepping in and leading as well. And we appreciate you and the choir and orchestra. And Susan, thank you for all that you do each and every week to help us to worship and to bring glory and honor to the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. It's wonderful to sing praises to him. So we began a series a while back called For the Church. It's a series where we, we wanted to look within scripture to see what are some, what are some things that, that God in his inspired word has given us to, to learn, to instruct us, to help us be a healthy, vibrant, growing church. First week, as you know, we talked about elders and pastors, how based on what scripture teaches us, they are given to us as a church to shepherd the body of Christ. Then the next week we talked about another office within the church that the scripture gives us, and it's deacons. Deacons are for the church and they're to serve the body of Christ, especially widows and those that are in need. And they're for the church. They're a gift to the church. Then we talked about all of us brought in by the one spirit, by the same spirit, salvation through Christ alone, all of us together as a body. And we looked at in Corinthians where Paul and talks about the body like a human physical body, all joined together, functioning together for the same purposes. And all of us are needed in the body of Christ, every single one of us. And we're all given different gifts and abilities and talents, and we're to use those for the church, for the edification of the body. Then last week, we looked at the early church and the expressions of the early church. Because of what Christ has done in their life, because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, they had a new spirit and new expressions and those expressions made a great impact outside the church and the lord added to their number day by day today we are ending this series we're wrapping it all up and we're hopefully by the end of it we'll we'll put a nice little bow on it and uh, finish the series and here's what the series the sermon is today for the church loving the people of god Loving the people of God. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus will repeatedly say to these churches, I know your works. I see your works. Jesus knows his churches. Have you ever thought about that? Not just these churches in Revelation that he's speaking about or to, but have you ever had the thought that Jesus knows this church. Every bit of it, Jesus knows his churches. 
He knows us. He knows what's going on. He knows the, the heart of everything. He knows the, the intention of everything. He knows his church. This church is in Revelation. He knows what they're facing. He knows their faithfulness, their good deeds. He also knows about their sin, the places where they've compromised. And here, as we'll see in our scriptures this morning, Jesus has words of encouragement for the church, but he also has some cutting rebukes and severe warnings. And here's what I want us to see this morning. Because he knows this church, both his encouragement and his correction, his rebukes are for the church. They're for us, and and we need to take heed of both of those this morning. And so let's read in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. He's talking to the church in Ephesus. The Scripture tells us, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. These are Jesus' words. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So as Jesus walks among the churches, what does he say? Let's let's look at this church in Ephesus and see what Jesus has to say for the church. The first thing that I want you to notice is that Jesus applauds the church. He he recognizes and he sees the things that they're doing well, right? If you keep your Bibles open, if you look at verses uh, in verse 2 and 3, you'll see the things that Jesus applauds in this church. He says, I know your works. They're doing some great things here. Verse 2, I know your works. Here's what he says. I commend your toil and your patient endurance. The word toil there, here's what it has in view. It, It has in view keeping the commandments of God even when threatened with death. He says, I see your toil. I know you've been threatened. I know that it's, it's in front of you almost daily and you have endured. You've toiled. You've continued to press on. And you see that also where he says endurance. This long-standing obedience to the faith, even in the face of trial. You can also see that he commends their intolerance of evil people. Look at what he says. He says it in a few different ways. Verse 2, he says, How you cannot bear with those who are evil. Then a play on words in verse 3, You are bearing up for my namesake. And so in other words, the, the church in Ephesus was not willing to compromise the truth with lies. They didn't tolerate evildoers in the church. 
And they bear up for Christ's namesake. So they were not willing to compromise with false teaching that led to idolatry. So this church hated the works that ignored the word of God and the worship of God. They hated it. There's another thing that Jesus commends. If you look at your scriptures, they're able to discern false teaching. The scripture says you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. Now, some of you might recall the early days in the church at Ephesus when Paul tells them in the book of Acts, he warns the elders of the church. This is actually the, the scripture that we use, that I, I used at the beginning of the series and talking about elders and pastors. He says to this church in Ephesus in the book of Acts, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. I know that at my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So Paul gave them that instruction in the book of Acts. And 30 years later, we find that this church had taken Paul's words seriously. So when you think about the church in Ephesus here in Revelation, this is a church that they're hardworking Christians. They're moral. They're doctrinally sound. I mean, I don't know about you, but this sounds like a church that I want to be a part of. I mean, as we think about calling a pastor and and, and searching for one, what, what kind of pastor wouldn't want to be a part of that kind of church, right? I mean, that's the place I want to be. But... That's not all that makes a church. At least a church that pleases Jesus. Because what we'll see next is what Jesus rebukes. And as you think about it, Jesus threatens to unchurch the church. Let's see what he rebukes. He rebukes the church. Look at verse 4 in your text. So we see what he applauds, what he notices. Here's what he rebukes. But this I have against you. You've got all of these things. But this I have against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Applied here, that first love, the love that characterized the Ephesian church at its beginning had now diminished Now, you can read all kinds of commentaries or talk to a lot of great scholars or people a whole lot more um, astute in their study of Scripture than I am. And you'll find that some say that this is love for Christ. You'll have others who will write and say that this is love for one another. It's hard to say whether this is love for Christ or love for for others, but in the end, I don't think we have to choose. Here's why I say that. The two, love for Christ and love for others, are closely linked in John's writings. But I want you to notice where the emphasis falls in this passage. Let's look at what it says. Jesus praises them. For what? Their endurance, for bearing up for his namesake, for hating what is evil. And we could say that those things are evidences of a love for Christ. In addition to that, 
Jesus has good things to say about their negative relations to outsiders. Not loving evildoers, not loving false teaching. But Jesus does not say anything about their positive relations to one another. Nothing. At the same time, we must acknowledge that throughout John's other writings, to grow cold in our love for one another indicates that our love for Christ has grown cold. First John. Let me read this to you real quick. First John chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God... And hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You you see there that there's, there's this connection between loving God and loving others. And if our love for others has grown cold, our love for God has probably also grown cold as well. And so here we have a church that was hardworking, moral, and doctrinally sound, and yet they jeopardized themselves by abandoning love. A necessary and central virtue to the life and health and vibrancy of a church. It, it's so necessary Love for one another is so necessary that Jesus threatens in this text to undo them. They will no longer be a church because they lack love for one another. That's what the Scripture is teaching us here. If you don't repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand, verse 5 says. And brothers and sisters, if Jesus removes your lampstand, you are no longer a church. You can get together all you want, but in Jesus' eyes, you will be nothing. That's how crucial, that's how crucial love is to the life and health and endurance and vitality of a church. It's not enough to confess and do the right things. We must love Christ, and from that love, love one another. Now, this sounds familiar. 1 Corinthians, you can turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul had just given instruction about um, the spiritual gifts and a text that we were in within the series about being a body and many members all joined together, accomplishing it. Then he says, at the very end of chapter 12, he says, and I will show you a more excellent way. Chapter 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and, I, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. 
Now we hear this a lot in weddings, right? And then what does Paul say? Love is patient. It's kind. Does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, it's important for us to see something else here before we move on. We've talked about this throughout the series. If you look back at, in Revelation, it talks about the lampstand. This is very important. If you look at Revelation eleven four, you can see that... Um, I've lost my page here. You can see, uh, discover that the lampstand signifies the church's witness in the world. The lampstand in the tabernacle burns continuously to light the way into God's presence. Now, as we've seen in this series, according to John's gospel, John chapter 13, 35 and John 17, 23, what happens when the church loves one another? What, what does Jesus say? What happens when the church loves one another? It gives evidence Our love for one another gives evidence that the world knows. The world can see that the Father has sent the Son. Our love for one another shows the world that Jesus is real. And so here's what Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus. If you don't return to the love you had at first, it will be the end of your witness to the world. Because you'll no longer be a church. Brothers and sisters, this is how crucial love for one another is. Our witness to the world, the evidence that God sent His only Son, Jesus, to the world to save and redeem the world, our witness of that is on the line by our love for one another. So we've seen what Jesus applauds and we've seen his rebuke. Now let's look at what he commands. He commands the church. What does he say? There's three imperatives in verse five. In verse five, he says, remember, repent, and do. So here's what I applaud you. Here's what I rebuke. Here's what you need to do in response to that. Remember, remember the love that you had at first. Remember from where you have fallen. Look back at the love that you once had for God and for one another. Consider how you cherish God's love for you and how that overflowed in love to other brothers and sisters in the church. Consider that. Remember, Jesus wants them to imitate that love that they once had. But then he also says, repent. As you look back and you remember and you see that you're not loving one another the way you used to, repent. Repent of it. Re- include, it, it not just, repentance is not just abandoning sinful ways, but it's returning to Christ and His ways. It's a complete 180 from what you were doing to turning and following what Christ has called you to do. And here in our text, that means pursue love. Not sitting around until someone else in the church loves first. 
Not waiting for other people within the church to take initiative. No, remember how you love the church, the brothers and sisters, repent and do. Do the works you did at first. Return to love by doing the works you did at first. Love Christ and love one another. I think John's other writings might be helpful here. For example, 1 John 3, 16 through 18. Listen to these words. By this we know love, that Christ laid down His life for us. So that's how we know what love is. And then John says, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word, but in deed and in truth. So what John says, the the works that demonstrate love toward one another are works like meeting your brother's needs. Works like sacrificing to serve the good of your brother or sister. You can look through the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, and you can find other ways. You can see there that this includes works like making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Have you ever thought about that? When you work to be unified rather than dissension, you're showing love toward your brother and sister. Ephesians 4.28, working hard with your hands so that you might have something to share with anyone in need. When you share with brothers and sisters, you're showing love. Ephesians 4.29, speaking words that impart grace to the hearer and fit the occasion. It's loving to use words that impart grace rather than dissension. Hate. Rumor. So this church was once zealous in these things, but now not even a generation has passed and they've abandoned them. And Jesus says you must return to those works to love one another. You must fight for love for one another. Don't forsake it. Now before we jump to some applications, I don't want you to miss what Jesus promises. He applauds them. He, he, he rebukes them. Then He seeks to give them advice and, and, and commands them. But here's what you need to do. Look at the promise. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Paradise. That word appears numerous times within the Old Testament. Most commonly, it's translated garden, as in the original garden of God in Eden. You remember the story in Genesis? You've heard this. The tree of life was in the garden. Man rebels against God. God banishes man from the garden. We see in Genesis chapter 3 verse 24, God drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way 
to the tree of life. So there's no longer access. There's no longer access. And in Adam's story, that's all of our story. There's no longer access. Our sin keeps us from access to eternal life. But God, being rich in mercy and love, sent His one and only Son, Jesus, to come and to die for the world, to remove their sins, to remove that barrier, and to give us access to the tree of life. The final pages of Revelation paint this picture for God's people. It says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. Jesus grants access to those who follow him. He he promises that access in Revelation 2, he promises that access is to those who conquer, those who endure, those who overcome to the end. And in this case, endure in love. They endure in love. He says, if you're convicted by your lovelessness and choose to follow Christ and remember and repent and do, and you go to pursue love for Christ and one another, the tree of life is yours. Love. Love one another. It's crucial for us, church. We can have all the vision, we can have the greatest pastor, the greatest worship team, the greatest ministry staff, the greatest elders, deacons. We can be the greatest church in all the numbers in the world, but if we don't love one another, it's pointless. It's pointless. So how do we apply these words? Let me give you a few things, just real quick. For starters, imitate what Jesus applauds. Right? Imitate what Jesus applauds. By rebuking this church for abandoning love, Jesus isn't telling them to be morally permissive. He's not telling them not to, uh, to no longer or to forsake sound doctrine. He's not saying, hey, let, let, let evildoers in the church. False, false teaching's okay. That's not what he's saying. Jesus says it's right to keep working hard when those oppose Christ's kingdom and they want to stop you. It's not right to tolerate those who practice evil. It is right to discern false teaching and expose how their teaching undermines the truth of God's word. That's very important for the life of a church. It's right to hate the works that Jesus hates. It's right to hate abortion. It's right to hate the porn industry. It's right to hate human trafficking. It's right to hate prejudice and covetousness and lying and cheating. It's right to hate anger and greed and lust of the flesh. It's right. But it's also wrong not to love one another. 
Pursuing love doesn't mean we abandon any of that. It does mean, though, that while we're hating those things, we're also stooping down and washing feet. It means that our life looks a lot like the one who loved you and bled to save you while he hated your works. Here's the second thing I want you to see. This one's very important. What you get right doesn't excuse what you get wrong. What you get right doesn't excuse what you get wrong. Look at how much this church gets right. They're working hard. They're moral. They're doctrinally sound. And yet Jesus, out of love, doesn't hesitate to warn them of judgment. What you get right doesn't excuse what you get wrong. And when Jesus puts his finger on something, you must change. The only appropriate response is to acknowledge it, repent of it, and do as he asks. You can try to justify wrong with all that you get right. But if you do so, you're in a dangerous place. Scriptures tell us that. Remember the Pharisee? God, I thank you that I'm not like those other guys, those sinners. The rich young ruler standing there before Jesus. Oh, all of these I've done since my youth. I've done all of these. I've kept all of them. Jesus says, one thing you still lack. One thing. That's great. You got all those other things right, but you still lack this. And then what does the scripture say about the rich young ruler? He walked away sad. He was this close. This close. Thirdly, First Baptist Belton must be characterized by love, not merely by what we're against. Our voice can be loud in letting others know what we're against. If you don't believe me, just look at social media. We're good at it. We're good at it, what we're against. And we should be. We should be against abortion. We should be against homosexuality. We should be against the prosperity gospel, critical race theory, all of, all of which screw, skew the truth of Scripture. And on and on the list could go that things that we need to be against. But I want to acknowledge, as Jesus does as well, that there's a place for the church to discern falsehood and expose evil. But at the same time, this passage drives us to recognize how necessary is the pursuit of love. It's necessary. If all that people can say of us is what we're against, then we have failed the world and we have failed Christ. Without love, we are nothing. And Jesus expects His church, His people, to be characterized by love. 1 Corinthians 16, 14, Let all that you do be done in love. 
Galatians 5, 13, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Ephesians 4, 16, to mature in Christ-likeness is to grow in love. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Finally, pursue love in all things. Pursue love in all things. Let's continue to be a church that, that loves one another. So I have some questions that I just want you, as you think about pursuing love in all things, let me just ask a few questions of you, and then we're done. Do you genuinely love this body? I'm not asking just the people that you, that you associate with. Do you genuinely love this body? Has serving one another become only a duty, only emotion that you're just going through? Has the Word of God become a mere manual for morality without the sweetness of meeting Jesus in its pages and leading you to love one another? Have you become a heresy hunter? And it's hard for you to shake the feeling suspicious of everybody but yourself because you're the only one that's right. How do you seek to show love toward one another What are ways that you show love to other brothers and sisters in the body? Do you lovingly seek reconciliation and forgiveness when you've been wronged or hurt by someone? Do you love those in this body that are different than you, that don't look like you, that may not even agree with you on everything? Have you become so fixated on your own opinion, your own way of thinking, that you've grown cynical about the church? Leading you to be divisive in the body. And distrusting toward everyone. Rather than loving. Do you commune with God and pray for this church? For one another? Do you pray for this body? Church, don't abandon love. Pursue it. Cultivate it. Keep your love for Christ and your love for one another vibrant. It's crucial. It's critical. If you have not love, we're nothing. So as we wrap it up, elders, pastors, shepherd, fulfill your role of shepherding with all of your might. But if you don't love, you're nothing. And it's in vain. Deacons, serve with great vigor. Serve with great vigor, but if you don't love, it's for naught. Church family, all of us, every one of us, engage, press in, serve, be an active part of the body, but if you don't love one another, it's worthless. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These are words for the church. Let's be that kind of church that loves one another. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for these words that instruct us, that help us, that guide us, that command us. 
Oh God, help us to be a church that truly loves one another. God, I pray that during this this time of response that you would have your way. I pray that if there's a brother or sister in here that we need to reconcile with, that we need to ask forgiveness from, we would do it. We wouldn't wait. We wouldn't wait for them to take initiative, but God, that we would take initiative because we love one another. God, I pray that all of us as the body of Christ called First Baptist Belton, no matter what role we play, no matter what gifting we have, no matter how long we've been here, how old or young we may be, God, I pray that we would be a church that loves one another. And God, I pray that the lamp of First Baptist Belton would continue to burn bright for the sake of others knowing that you, Jesus, are real. And it's in your wonderful name we pray these things. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our song of invitation. If you would like more information, please visit fbbelton.org or call our church office at 254-939-0705. We are located at 506 North Main Street. We hope to see you soon.